If you'd open your Bibles to Nahum chapter 2 tonight, Nahum chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 8 to 13 tonight in Nahum chapter 2, which says this, Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they're fleeing. Stop, stop, and no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there's no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. She's emptied, yes. She's desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body. And all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, lioness, and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lioness, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word, and we pray that you would use this passage tonight to do what needs to be accomplished in our minds and hearts and lives, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In our Pledge of Allegiance, we say we're one nation under God, but there are things that would seem to be observable that would seem to suggest we're kind of losing sight of that, that we're one nation under God. In fact, there are areas of morality and there are areas that are taking place in the political world that would seem to suggest we're just otherwise than that. We're not one nation under God. And if we don't change our ways, what a book like Nahum says is the entire nation will be able to say one nation under God's judgment. About a hundred years before Nahum wrote this book of Nahum, Jonah had gone to Nineveh and he had preached the truth of God and the whole city had repented. Now, we may remember this story from the book of Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh, told them that God was going to destroy the city in 40 days. It took three days for Jonah to go through that massive city and proclaim that message to all of the people. And the people believed him. They believed the word of God. The political leadership believed the word of God. In fact, they took the lead. The political leaders took the lead and said, we need to get right with the God of the Bible. So as a result of that, God did not end up destroying Nineveh. When the book of Jonah ends, Jonah's angry because he didn't destroy the city, because that's what he wanted God to do. But the grace of God is such that if there is a repentance, if the leaders of a nation will change their course and put the nation back on track to wanting to do what's right before the Lord, then God can turn cursing into blessing. And that is what happened at one time to Nineveh. Well, the response to God and his word was short-lived. The city of Nineveh and the Assyrian leadership went right back to their old ways. They were like a dog that returns to their own vomit. The people went back to their evil and the sin. And that was bringing them now to the point where God was going to judge them. So God sent Nahum the prophet to proclaim judgment is now fixed. That's what we saw in chapter 2, verse 7. It is fixed. It's too late now to change it. It's too late to stop the judgment of God. It didn't matter to God how powerful they were, how impressive they were to the world. It didn't matter. God said, it's fixed. I'm going to destroy you. Now, the lesson to learn when we go through a series of verses like this is no matter how politically or militarily powerful a godless power may be, God is going to eventually destroy them. 
If a nation is not interested in doing what's right before the Lord, God will just give them rope long enough, then he'll allow them to hang themselves. Now, the peculiar feature of the dispensation in which we live is there is a focus on the individual more so than perhaps the national. Because God was dealing with national Israel in these Old Testament books, but now he's dealing with individual Gentiles all over the world. However, since God is a God of all the nations, and since this text has ramifications to any nation and any individual, we come to the conclusion that there is an application to be made both nationally and individually from any text that is in this book of Nahum. God is perfectly capable of not only targeting nations and allowing the nation to come under his judgment, he's perfectly able to target individuals and allow them to come under the judgment too. And as we look at these verses tonight, there are 16 prophetic facts that Nahum reveals to Nineveh and to the people there. The first fact is it doesn't matter how dominant the person or power once was. Verse 8, though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days. I don't care how much a person has. Earthly stuff is short-lived. Earthly glory is short-lived. Compared to eternity, it's nothing. The fulfillment of God's judgment prophecy has nothing to do with how impressive this nation was, how impressive this city was, how impressive these political leaders were. It didn't matter to God. When God did make these predictions, Nineveh was the dominant city of the world. It was a place filled with people, and it was a place where people looked at it and said, man, oh man, what a great place. It was like a refreshing place to be. It was a refreshing place to live. In fact, the text brings out the fact they had pools of water. They were garden pools. So you had a city here where people could actually go to this city and they could just kind of sit by the water, sit by the pools, and just reflect on life. At the time that Nahum made this prediction, there was no major trouble or turmoil there. And people who were living there thought, well, life is safe for us. Life is secure for us. And God basically says that's all about the change. Just because you think you're secure and just because you think you have great power and prominence, it doesn't mean nothing to the glorious, glorious God. And if there is a lesson to be learned from this opening point is that you don't want to put your trust in the way things are right now necessarily. You don't want to put your trust in numbers or chariots or horses or political powers. You want to put your trust in the Lord because these pools of water are not the fountain of the living water. You want to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can actually get us into a right relationship with God. So it doesn't matter how dominant a nation is. It doesn't matter how dominant a political power is. That's nothing for God. The second prophetic fact is God will put such panic and terror in them, they're all going to flee. He says in verse 8, now they're fleeing. God says, I'm going to use my power to actually scare people. I'm going to use my power to make them almost paranoid. I'm going to create things in their world that will make such desperate circumstances that they're going to want to flee. And not only are they going to be defeated, they're going to be scared. They're going to run. They're going to run. You know, I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that people who live their lives in fear spend more time listening to the news than they do God. And people who spend their whole life afraid of their shadow, as it were, afraid of what's going to happen next and if everything's going to collapse, they're not spending the quality time in the Word of God and with God. 
And one of the things that God does with people like that is he allows panic and terror to seize them so they flee, they run, they're scared. God said, that's what I'm going to do. Now you're talking, as Nahum is presenting this, to the most prestigious city in the world. I mean, it would be like going into Washington, D.C. and lecturing Congress and telling them, this is what's going to happen to you. And they would look at you like you're out of your mind. But God says, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it in just a really short time. The third prophetic fact is God will so attack them that no one will turn back. At the end of verse 8, stop, stop, and no one turns back. Once God does this, there's going to be no turning back. And even though some people were trying to get people to turn back and say, hey, it's not going to be so bad. You can stay here. You don't have to worry about it. Stop, stop. These people won't listen to the political leaders. They won't listen to the military leaders. They're not going to listen to the religious leaders, perhaps even the invading enemy, regardless of who's calling out to them to stop. They're not going to listen. And the point is no one is going to listen to the leadership because it's not leading them into a true safety relationship with God. It's a big mistake for people to trust a leadership that doesn't point them in the right true ways of the Lord. It's a big mistake because it's going to fall apart. It's going to collapse. God's going to see to it that it will collapse. The irony of this message is that if the people would turn back to God and his word, they could stop running. If they would have been people who would turn to the Lord and say, we want to do what your word says and started trusting him, God would have reversed or could have reversed this thing. Although at this point, it's just way beyond that. But what God's people want to understand is you don't want to turn back and follow some leadership that's leading you away from the word of God. You don't want to be following them at all. You want to be going in just the opposite direction. Now, the fourth prophetic fact is God would plunder all of their accumulated wealth. Verse 9 is very interesting because it says in verse 9, Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there's no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. This was a wealthy city. On one account that I read, they said that they actually, when the Babylonians, for the most part, were the big group that went in there and took all this stuff, the Medes and Persians got some of it too. In fact, there's a Persian account that actually says they actually confiscated 150 golden beds. Golden beds. So here's Nineveh, this glorious, wealthy city, wealth of every kind. They had household goods, furniture, they had jewels. This city was a flourishing city. And God said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sanction a power to come into you and take away all your wealth. In fact, God says, I'm actually going to command that this political power come to nothing. Now, people love their wealth. They trust their wealth. They think that's where their security is. God says, well, before I actually destroy you, I'm going to see to it that all that's taken away. People who are wealthy often think they're invincible. But when God decides it's time to send his judgment, he'll do what he wants with everything they have. And it's interesting that in historical records, there were vast amounts of wealth that had been accumulated by various Assyrian kings in Nineveh, Asher Nasserpal, Shalmanser, Tiglath-Pileser, Sargon, Sennacherib, Esarhaddon. They had accomplished or accumulated vast sums of silver and gold and treasures, and they literally, as one commentator said, stripped Nineveh bare. God says, my judgment will be that, that you lose it all. 
See, it's an important thing to keep God at the center of things because God can cause things to actually fall apart. He can actually hit so that he just wipes out everything people have. I mean, that's within the prerogative of what God is capable of doing. And it's no coincidence that in multiple archaeological discoveries that were made from Nineveh, not one cent of gold, not one silver, not one treasure was ever found. When we were in Turkey in Ephesus, we were walking through the streets and there were some guys that were peddling some things and they had some old coins and they said, would you be interested in buying these old coins? They'd actually discovered, as they were doing archaeological digs around that property, some of the old coins that were still in existence. There was nothing found here. I mean, God literally did do this. He literally sent people in there and they took everything away. See, people may think their investments and their savings mean that they don't have to be serious about the Lord because they're sitting on their little nest egg. They don't have to be serious about the word of God. They don't have to be serious about their lives and lining up with the scriptures. People can think they have their real security and their gold and silver. God says, when I decide... I'm going to move in and judge. I will take it all away. And I cannot help again but think of that story with the rich man that the Lord Jesus Christ told. I mean, that guy had hit the big time. He's tearing down barns, building new barns. He's a mega rich type of man. And the text says, you fool, you fool. You've spent all your time accumulating this wealth, and you don't even know tonight your soul is going to be taken from you. So God says, that's what I'm going to do. They're going to plunder all of your accumulated wealth. The fifth fact is, I'm going to make the people in power empty. In verse 10, she is emptied. Yes, she's desolate and waste. Now, the next three Hebrew words, empty, desolate, and waste, are very close in Hebrew spelling. The word empty is bukah, the word desolate is mebukah, and the word waste is mebulakah. And those three words combined indicate that what God's saying is, I'm going to literally empty you in the sense I'm going to depopulate you. I'm going to cause a devastation to hit that's going to cause you to be very confused and perplexed. You won't know what to do. You won't know what to think. And I'm going to empty you to the point of literally I'm voiding you out. Combined, that's what those three Hebrew words say. Nahum says what God is going to do, Nineveh, because you've made such a mockery of him and his word and his will, he's going to see to it that he's going to literally remove you from existence. Several years before Nahum wrote this, Hezekiah prayed when he knew the Assyrians were about to attack these words. O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above your cherubim, you are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heaven and earth. Now what Hezekiah came to realize when he saw trouble coming is God's still on his throne. And God is still over every single power and every single individual who's on the face of this earth. He can bless, he can curse. God can prosper, God can destroy. God can make something full, he can make it empty. He's God. And what he would do here is make it empty. He said, I literally am going to bring you to nothing. That's what I'm going to do. You had everything, I'm going to bring you to nothing. His sixth fact is, I'll make the people in power desolate. In verse 10, he says, and yes, she is desolate. Now, this is a divine judgment, and that's what divine judgment does. Divine judgment is that which makes people desolate. It brings the target to nothing. 
Nahum says God is telling you that he's going to devastate you. He's going to bring you down to nothing. And about 300 years after God had done this to Nineveh, Alexander the Great was in the vicinity. I mentioned this before. He was puzzled by the fact I can't even find any remnants that this city even existed. So God literally did this. He literally took this major city of the world that took Jonah three days just to walk through. He took this major city of the world and he literally destroyed it that you couldn't even find it anymore, completely desolate. But then he says also he'll make the people in power a waste. That's the third word, waste. As we pointed out just a minute ago, Mebu Laka. God would authorize enemies to come in and take everything away. He literally would void out the people, the power, and the city. Don't ever forget this about God, and this is true nationally, it's true locally, it's true individually. God can bless, God can demolish. It's true from this text, it's true from history. He can void out the biggest, the strongest, and the most dominant. And when there's no good fruit when the place is empty and people are lonely and they're desolate, that's not a sign of the blessing of God. In fact, it may be a sign of the judgment of God. I love the old black and white westerns because the good guys demolish the bad guys. And it usually comes down to a showdown and the good guy wins. God says, I want people to know I'm going to win. Nobody's going to overtake me. Nobody's going to beat me. It's going to be a showdown. And when people put me to a certain limit and I say I've had enough, I'm going to bring them to waste. It's a warning to any nation that would just make a mockery of God and his word. Now, the eighth prophetic fact is God will melt their hearts. That's what he says in verse 2. Their hearts are melting. In Psalm 110.6, God promises that a judgment will come that will be terrifying he says that he will judge among the nations, he will fill them with corpses, he will shatter their chief men. That's a scary prediction. I mean, when you see God start to move in an area and start destroying people, people die. And when you see that, people are scared. And again, we cannot think of a city like Nineveh as just being a place of brick and mortar. This city was filled with people. These people didn't care about God and his word. They didn't care about pleasing God. God says, when I bring my judgment upon places like that, it's going to be terrifying. And what's described here is that a fear starts in the heart, it goes to the knees, it affects the whole body, it ends up affecting a person's face. And when he says their heart will melt, it means that there'll be a terrifying fear that will flow through the rest of the body. It's the kind of fear that's described here as one in which every part of the person is just afraid. They don't know where to go. They're scared. God says, I create that. That's part of my judgment. I mean, really, we should have a fearlessness to us in some ways, realizing that we're in a right relationship with God. But God says, look, people that aren't interested in me, I can cause things to happen that will make them so afraid and so terrified in their heart, they can't even sleep at night. God is perfectly sovereignly capable of doing that in an individual's mind, in an individual's heart. And he's certainly capable of doing that in a nation. Security is always found in the Lord. When people decide, I'm going to move away from the Lord, I'm not going to be in a right relationship with God, they're going to end up insecure. That's just the way it works. Which brings us to the ninth fact, God will make their knees knock. He ratchets it up a bit by saying, and not only will their hearts be melting, but their knees will be knocking. The truth is, 
not only is security found in the Lord, but also is courage. Courage. It comes from a relationship with the Lord. Joshua taught the people that. Be courageous. And the courage comes from the Lord. But one who mocks God, one who's not interested in the word of God, not interested in applying the word of God, they're not going to have a courage or confidence. They're going to live their lives in fear and panic, probably on some type of antidepressant drug. What God describes here is a fear that's so scary the knees are shaking. The person is like in a paranoid state. That's what happens when people get away from God and his word. That's what happens when a nation gets away from God and his word. They're scared of their own shadow. They end up just going through life petrified. But for those who stay close to the Lord, those who stay close to the word, they have a confidence to them. They have a courage to them. Because they know whatever's going on is under the sovereign hand of God. It's not due to the fact they're not right with God. Which brings us to the 10th fact, God will attack the whole body at the end of verse 10. Also, anguish is in the whole body. God's judgment would be so scary that knees will knock, hearts melt, the body is physically sick and afflicted. I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that there are people that are so out of whack in their relationship with God that they're actually physically sick. I mean, they're physically sick and they never have a good day of health. That's consistent with New Testament doctrine. I mean, the Apostle Paul taught that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Lord Jesus Christ addressed the seven churches of Revelation. He taught the same principle. He said, if you get my individual people and they're not interested in a right relationship with me, I can make them weak, I can make them sick, and I can make them dead. Now, I don't know if you've ever been scared to this level, but when you get scared to the point that your heart melts and your knees are knocking, your whole body's affected, I mean, you don't function right. You don't think right and you don't function right. And the key to this is turn back to the Lord. Get into a right relationship with God. Which brings us to the 11th fact, God will make all of their faces pale. That's what he says in verse 10, and all of their faces are grown pale. And notice the emphasis on all, all. In other words, everyone would be affected by this ferocious judgment of Nineveh. God said, I'm going to send a judgment to you. It'll make you so scared, it'll drain the color out of everybody's faith. And by virtue of the fact that he addresses it to all the people, we're talking here about not just some city of buildings. We're talking here about individual people. All the people are going to be scared because of the judgment of God. His 12th prophetic fact is God will remove their ferocious dominance. In verses 11 and 12, where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where is the lion, lioness, and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lioness, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Now the Ninevites saw themselves as being like lions. In fact, there were two large stones that were uncovered, that stood on both sides of the temple, that were dedicated to Ishtar, the Assyrian goddess of fertility. And they saw themselves as just a lion that could attack anyone at any time and win. I mean, that's how they function. They saw themselves as people who could ferociously attack others and rip them to shreds. And they had a phony confidence in themselves. They had a phony confidence in themselves that nothing can touch us. Nothing can disturb us. We're too pompous. We're too powerful. They saw themselves as mighty and strong and untouchable. God says, you're trusting the wrong thing. You're trusting the wrong thing because I'm about to destroy you. 
and you're about to learn that God is in control, you're not in control. And they would become the prey. The one that had been the predator would become the prey. God says, that's what I'm going to do to this nation, and that's what I'm going to do to you as individuals. Which brings us to the 13th fact, God is against you. Verse 13, behold, I am against you. Now that pronoun you is a pronoun that would indicate he's against Nineveh, he's against the Syrians, he's against the people that live in the city. And he says, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'm against you by declaration. So it's not that I just have this sentimental feeling that I need to be against you. I've declared I'm against you. I've made a judicial declaration as the Lord of hosts, the God who controls everything in heaven, everything on earth. I have made this judicial declaration that I'm against you. It's the reverse of Romans 8.31. If God is for you, who can be against you? But if God is against you, no one will be for you. No one will be able to help you. This little statement right here, that God would be against these people, certainly goes against the very familiar statement that says, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Actually, there reaches a time when he is against the sinner. And when he reaches that moment where he's against the sinner, perilous judgment is about to hit. There are no words that you can read that are any more fearful than God to say to you, I'm against you. You never want God to say that about you or me. You never want God to say, I'm against you. That's a possibility. Now, we can't have God say that, that he's against us in view of the fact that we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have a relationship with God that is based on his son, but we can actually, by the life that we're living, not be in a favorable relationship with the Lord and not be in good fellowship with the Lord. And he could be against us in the sense that he's not going to bless us. And I want you to notice the emphasis of the pronoun I. It occurs three times in the verse. God himself is saying, I am going to use my sovereign power. I'm going to use my sovereign might to do everything I can against you. And as one commentator said, when God says that about anything, it's terrifying. This phrase is terrifying. When God says, I'm against you, it means it's over. You have no chance of escape. You have no chance to change. You have no chance to experience forgiveness. It's over. God had made a personal decision that he was going to turn against Nineveh, turn against the Assyrians. He made the determination. He said, I am declaring this. I'm making this by declaration. I'm going to use my sovereign power against you. And a verse of scripture like that, I think, should prompt every one of us to honestly ask and answer ourselves, where do I stand in my relationship with God? Am I his friend in fellowship or am I his foe in fellowship? Where do I stand in my relationship with God? Because we never want God to say, I'm just against you. I'm against what you're doing. I'm against what you're thinking. I'm against you. Now, the 14th fact is God will burn up their military. That's what he says in verse 13. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. 
Assyria had an intimidating military, and it did have a lot of chariots. They weren't as flashy as the Medes and the Babylonians, but those chariots were war machines of the day. Each chariot had a driver, and each chariot typically had a couple of soldiers in it. One of the soldiers was a skilled archer with a bow and with arrows, and another one was skilled with a spear. And when someone would see those chariots coming, they would begin to think, oh, here comes Assyria. We have no chance. God says, those chariots are nothing for me. Those were the premier weapons of the day. God says, I'll simply burn them up. I don't care about their warfare technology. They can have all the warfare technology they want. They can have all the equipment they want. It's no match for me. It never is. God basically says, I can use my sovereignty to direct the Medes and Persians or the Babylonian Empire to come in and literally burn them up. Or if I want to, I can literally, like I did in Sodom and Gomorrah, just send fire right down of heaven to consume you and consume all of these chariots. Either way, he said, I want you to know you're going to be targets of my anger, targets of my wrath, and I'm burning up these machines. The 15th fact is God will cut off their ability to attack. He says in verse 13, he said, I will cut off your prey from the land. This power had acted, as we said before, like young lions. They attacked whoever they wanted. They pounced on defenseless people. They took advantage of people. They used their political power to strip people of what they had and to get more for themselves. That's the way they governed. And God said, I've been watching that. So what I'm going to do to you is I'm going to cut off your ability to do anything. I'll do to this whole nation what I did to Sennacherib, your arrogant leader. He surrounded Jerusalem and intended to attack and destroy the next day. God caused 185,000 soldiers to die in the night. Sennacherib went back home. He was killed while worshiping his false idols. God said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to literally destroy you. And finally, he said, I'll put an end to your message and messengers. Verse 13, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Never again will there be a false leader who will communicate a false message to the people. God says, I'm tracking you down. I'm going to destroy you. And you'll never be heard from again. You'll never be a factor in anything. Now, when you go through a text of scripture like that, all of us need to think very seriously about what is our real relationship with God. This is no game here. If you're a person who's in some form of leadership, if you're a person who's in some form of power, and you don't care about God and his word, you better think very seriously and soberly about a text like this. Because your future is not a good one. I mean, God has given you the privilege of being in the position that you hold. And if you're not interested in moving your constituency in a way that's right before him, you can reach a point where God says, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of you. And once he reaches that point, it's not a pleasant ending. He can destroy things. And if you don't think he'll do it, look at Nineveh. Because he literally did do it. I am convinced from this book of Nahum that the only place of safety for any of us, is in a proper relationship with God. It's the only place of safety in this world. It's in a proper relationship with God. That proper relationship, of course, begins with Jesus Christ. He's the living water who can and will bring refreshment to our soul. It begins with Jesus Christ. 
But then after we've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be real serious about understanding and applying the word of God because that's where safety is found in our relationship with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for these great books that you've put in the scriptures. We realize, Heavenly Father, that these Old Testament books are important for us. You have them there so we can learn and grow. And I want to pray tonight for our nation. I pray for our leaders of this country, that they would realize the responsibility they have to make right decisions, righteous decisions, get away from things that are immoral and indecent, things that are corrupt. I pray that they would realize that they need to point this nation into the right ways of the Lord so we're one nation under God. I pray they would realize that if they don't do that, they're heading to a terrible disaster. They're leading a nation in that way. And I pray that for ourselves as individuals. We need to realize that we, in some ways, we're our own little nation. We govern ourselves here for a while individually, and we have responsibilities to make sure we stay on track in our relationship with the Lord. Lord, we're grateful that we can have security in you. We pray that you would continue to keep us growing and maturing and keep us courageous in our walk with you and in our understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.